This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And Martisan. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? God, the aptest name ever. Mark, what the <laughs> hell is going on? <laughs> well, what the hell is going on, first of all, it's it's the holiday season, so Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate. We wish you all the best. Uh, Danny's off in, in Australia, if you've noticed a little uh, Aussie twinge in her accent during the pod. So she's joining us from the land down under, and I'm here in D.C. We're going to take some time off for the holidays, so there won't be a new pod for the next two weeks, but we're going to re-up, we, we just a preview, our pod on, you know, we just had this Colorado case they, where this Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that Donald Trump may not be on the ballot because he's an insurrectionist. And we had a great pod that just laid out why this is just insanity. We're going to re-up that one next week for you. It's perfect timing. And it's uh, one of the best discussions of that topic I've, I've heard. Uh, so far. So we wish you all the best for the next two weeks, and we'll be back with you in early January. But uh, we've got one more pod before we break for a break for the holidays. And so today we're talking a little bit about what next in the war between Israel and Hamas. We're talking a little bit more about what the future of the Palestinians might look like. We're asking all the hard questions. We're talking about why the Biden administration won't do more about the Houthis and the attacks on shipping and the attacks on American troops in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. So we've got all the sort of hard questions and some kind of gross answers that depressed me a little bit. Yeah, we, we, we came to the conclusion that there are four levels of de-radicalization that we have to go through. We have to de-radicalize the Palestinian population. We have to de-radicalize the American population. We have to de-radicalize the Democratic Party. And apparently we have to de-radicalize the State Department because we have problems at all four fronts. It really, you know, something, it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, a lot of our listeners are not in D.C., but guys, you probably have heard about this, you know, I, I, for the last 40 years that I've worked in Washington, have been completely intolerant of not disrespect for the president. God, you know, that's our, that is our democratic prerogative and we love it. But insubordination, you know, I still remember when I was a, a young Senate staffer and a New York Times reporter was crapping all over Bill Clinton overseas. And I just looked at him and said... What are you talking about? That man is the president of the United States, and you are dumping on him to Indian government officials? What is wrong with you? I feel that way to this day. I don't like Joe Biden. I don't agree with Joe Biden. I think he's done a pretty good job on Israel. But the notion that these uppity punks, interns at the White House, these scumbag foreign service officers who don't actually believe in democracy— are standing up and disagreeing with the president, better still, with masks over their faces because they don't have the courage of their convictions? What the hell has happened? Well, first of all, doing it publicly. So the State Department has, like, dissent channel for, for people who want to send a, uh, you know, send a cable saying they disagree with because you want to, you want to encourage some level of discussion within the State Department so that there's not, like, a echo chamber. There are official channels, quiet channels, for people to express their views, but... 500 State Department officials sending a public letter, the White House interns signing a letter to the president saying they disagree with the president. I was a White House intern in the Reagan administration. And let me tell you, first of all, I was just so grateful to be at the White House and to have the privilege of working for the president of the United States at the tender age of 20 years old. And to Good think Mark, that you were not an entitled little douchebag, which is apparently what all these people are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all I can say is that they all should line up in front of the American Enterprise Institute, and I would be delighted to fucking slap every single one of them across the face and remind them who they work for. And that is Joe Biden, who I didn't vote for. You get one president. The other guy lost. You don't like him. You disapprove of him. Then run you yourself. Know, then run yourself and resign. 
But okay. do not think that you should put a kafia on your face and stand out there like a member of Hamas and think to yourself, I'm supporting American democracy. Okay, rant, 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 rant. Anyway, that is <laughs> actually what we spend our podcast talking about. Well, we talk about that a little at the end. But then you've got the radicalization of the youth. You know, there was a, there was a comedian on, on, on Twitter the other day who said, I am not surprised that Hamas is hiding in schools. I just didn't know it was Harvard. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the the polling from the Harvard Harris poll on the views of young of Americans eighteen to twenty four. Oh my God! I mean, the, put it put aside the confusion over Hamas and the Palestinians and Israel like that. Sixty seven percent of Americans eighteen to twenty four think Jews are an oppressor class and should be treated as such. I mean, holy, holy. Well, holy crap. That's, oh. that is that is 1930s style Nazi anti-Semitism, and that is who these people are most inspired by. We have such deep problems, and I will say we should. The one thing we owe to Hamas and to Iran is a debt of gratitude in ripping the mask off the U.S. academic leadership, the our students, the Democratic Party, because. Speaking just as a Jew, I had no idea people hated us so much. I had no idea people hated Israel so much. I had no idea they wished that we had died in the Holocaust, more than the six million of us who did. I'm glad to know that because now I can fight my real enemies at home first. Amen. Um, It's really true. No, it is. It it is true. It's gross. We've talked a lot about it, guys, all year. All of these questions are really important. But the spiritual and moral rot at the heart of our society, at the heart of our elites, is something we cannot brush aside and blame on Donald Trump or blame on Republicans. And even blame on – we can't even blame it on Joe Biden. This is a – this transcends the two parties. This is – this is a real crisis. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get into a conversation about the de-radicalization of the Palestinians with Elliot Abrams in a second. But it's kind of hard for us to talk about de-radicalizing the Palestinians when we haven't de-radicalized ourselves. Um, And and to talk about how Palestinian schools are teaching Jew hatred uh, and how terrible that is. When guess what? Harvard is teaching Jew hatred. You know, and our schools, are teaching, more. you know, and our and our schools are teaching Jew, Jew hatred because, you know, how do you get to that point where 67 percent? I mean, that that's a super majority. <laughs> that's a, that's a, you a know, veto proof majority of, of you young know. people who think Israel should be destroyed and Hamas should be put in charge. My only wish is that they could all go and live there. Yeah. All right, we have, we got to get to our interview. Uh, all right. You guys all know Elliot Abrams. We had him on at the beginning uh, of the war between Hamas and Israel. He's he's a great friend and a, a great person, um, and we were lucky to get him. He's the senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as the deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration. He supervised where he supervised U.S. policy on the Middle East. He's done amazing work on Latin America, on Iran, on Venezuela, and he's just a he. He is a truly one of Washington's greats. Here's our interview. Elliot, welcome back to the podcast. I'm very happy to be back. Your first podcast with us when this first happened was probably one of the most popular what the hell's ever recorded. Um, yeah. And so we brought you back in a shameless bid to boost our ratings. <laughs> well, and also, it's really all about ratings for us. <laughs> is the question. Lots happened since we last spoke. The Biden administration is at once publicly backing Israel, despite a lot of pressure from its base, which is a good thing. Bad thing that its base is giving it so much pressure. We'll get into that. But at the same time, quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, pressuring them to just like, you know, pull it back, wrap it up. And they seem to have contradictory demands. One is humanitarian pauses, do this carefully, protect civilians. The second one is do this quickly. Get it over with. Stop the high-intensity operations by January and uh, and move to low intensity. These seem to be contradictory requests that you could only make if you didn't care about the military objective, which was destroying Hamas. Am I wrong? I think the real question is, uh, what is the administration 
saying in private and what do the top officials actually think and say. And maybe I'm a little bit soft on the administration here, but I go back to what you said about the base. Um, I think some of their posturing, uh, oh, we're pushing the Israelis very hard, is for their base. I don't hear very many complaints from the Israelis. I, they, they don't seem to me to feel that they're under enormous amounts of pressure to finish the thing early. And remember, there's internal pressure uh, in Israel. And by that, I mean mostly uh, the economy. They can't keep 400,000 reservists away from work for a year. They've got to get back to something more like normalcy. So I'm, I tend to be a bit charitable toward the administration on the question of whether they're forcing the Israelis to stop prematurely. I mean, this is really fraught, right? So one of the things that people forget about when we talk about war is that when democracies fight wars, actually people have opinions and not just opinions about good and evil and the grand things of the day, but you know, who's going to deliver the milk, who's going to do the job, who's going to man the factory. And it's very interesting. I focused a lot on the Biden administration. And you've heard me say that I think that Joe Biden's been the stalwart, where a lot of people in the White House are far to the left of him. Um, I think he's an old school Democrat who's very pro-Israel. But Play this out for us, Elliot. You know, we've talked about what happened on October 7th. We've talked about the conflict. We've talked about the Palestinians. Um, play this forward. How long can this last, even when you, even from that more sort of mundane perspective that you talk about? Assume for a moment that the United States is saying to Israel, you have to um, decimate Hamas. You have to eliminate them as a military threat. Just do what you need to do. I don't think it would be very different from what's happening right now, which, which I would say is this. This stage, stage one of the, or maybe this is stage two, stage one was the bombing. So this stage, stage two, goes till something like the end of January. Maybe, maybe it goes into February, but we're talking now about uh, from where we are a month, maybe. Um, I, if there's a difference between the Americans and the Israelis, I think the administration is trying to shorten it by a couple of weeks. It's not a major difference. So you get to, maybe you get to the end of January, and then they have an intermediate stage. Before the fighting largely stops, people talk about the day after. But I think there's a stage before the day after. There's a stage where Israel is clearly in charge of security because there's nobody else there to do it. And that's certainly six months. If you're thinking of organizing an Arab force, you're thinking of uh, PA, whatever you're thinking of, it doesn't happen very quickly. So we get to the summer, I think, with Israel largely or entirely in charge of security while friendly Arab states and the United States try to figure out what is the fourth stage, the day after. That's what I think it looks like. And I think we get to stage three, where Israel starts releasing lots of reservists and removing troops from Gaza, uh, but is still fighting the remnants of Hamas. I think we get there maybe in February, and it lasts maybe six months, something like that. So a lot of people seem to be looking at this through the prism of the last 20 years of counterterrorism operations that we in the Bush administration and the subsequent Obama administration carried out, where you do surgical strikes against terrorists, you uh, do counterinsurgency operations, you separate the people from the, from the bad guys and all the rest of that. And is that the right prism? Isn't this more like a World War II prism, where you have a, a movement that has taken over a country with the support of the population. And this is something I want to get into with you, is, is the support of the population. And the polls show in the West Bank, 80% support Hamas. Less now, apparently, in Gaza, maybe because they're feeling the pain of it, of what's happening. But large, large populations of the Palestinians support Hamas. 
don't support a two-state solution. Want to believe that we should remove Israel from the river to the sea. You can't have a two-state solution with those with people like that. And so isn't this more, shouldn't the model be more of a World War II model where we decisively defeat the government and then we have to go through a de-radicalization and demilitarization process where the population has to be forced to confront their crimes, has to be forced to recognize the evil, their, their own culpability in October 7th as a population and de-radicalized. And those, the Nazi movement, militarism of the emperor and Tojo has to be made illegal. There have to be war crimes trials. There has to be yeah. uh, that, or else you can't have any kind of peace in the long yeah. term. We have a great, I mean, we have a great relationship with Japan and, and Germany right now. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're living side by side in peace with them. How do we get to the same point with the Palestinians? Or can we? I don't think we can. And I think you're dreaming. Um, you're using a model um, from World War II, Japan and Germany. But the model that is more recent is Iraq and Afghanistan, where we, we the United States, we didn't do any of that. I mean, we did debathification, which a lot of people think was probably taken too far and was a mistake. Um, I don't think we're going to get there in Gaza. I think what the Israelis have to do is keep their eye on the security threat to them from Hamas and Islamic Jihad. That's the critical thing. So that Israelis don't have to face a security threat of terrorism or of um, rockets and missiles coming out of Gaza. They can achieve that. Then you get to the question of, well, who's going to rule Gaza in the medium run? There are things that can be done about, uh, I wouldn't call it de-radicalization. I would call it defunding those who are teaching radicalism. And over a, let's say, five or ten year period, that's got to happen too. And as for the Palestinian state, I think I've said before with you guys, I don't think there's ever going to be a Palestinian state. It is too great it would be, too great a security threat to Jordan and to Israel. Uh, certainly with, with Iran desperately trying, you know, with the Houthis and the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and the West Bank and Gaza trying to encircle Israel and destroy Israel. A sovereign and independent Palestinian state uh, would simply turn into a proxy for Iran. And I think it's not going to happen. I don't want to leave you the impression that I think that there's going to be kumbaya at the end of this, you know, the way uh, that Palestine and Israel will be allies the way Germany and the United States are today. That's not what I was getting at so much. What I was getting at is that there has to be something deeper than a military victory. There has to be some sort of forced, compelled facing of the complicity of the population in what happened on October 7th. There has to be some sort of de-radicalization. We have to we have stop the stop the brainwashing of kids to attack Jews. The learned hatred of Israel as just as a national security measure for Israel. Otherwise, it's just a cycle of Israel goes in, they destroy Hamas, they leave, they set they set up some sort of a holding pattern, and then they radicalize a new generation of kids to go and do the same thing on October seventh that they did. You know? Yeah, but more the formula that is probably least likely to work is to have Israel, that is to say, a bunch of Jews trying to de-radicalize Arabs. That's not going to work. Where it has worked in, let's say, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, it's because Arabs and an Arab government, a legitimate government, set about uh, trying to achieve it. And there's been progress. Where I agree with you is certainly um, we should try to stop people from radicalizing, from making it worse. For example, the way it is done in UNRWA schools, or the way, to some extent, uh, though a decreasing extent, it's done in uh, Palestinian Authority schools. You know, the worst, I mean, the one I'd really like to fix because it's the worst offender and has been for 25 years, is Al Jazeera. If you got your sense of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the Gaza war, what's Israel all about from Al Jazeera, you too would turn into a terrorist. 
I remember this from the Iraq war because Al Jazeera cost us American lives by inciting people to violence against Americans in Iraq. Now they're doing it again. And it's not just Gaza I'm worried about. Al Jazeera has a very broad listenership throughout the uh, Arab world. And uh, it's a crime. It's a crime. I'm not quite sure what can be done about it, but more places should do, I would argue, what the Israelis have done, which is to close down the Al Jazeera office in their country. It's, look, this has nothing to do with freedom of the press. Al Jazeera is the voice of the Qatari royal family. So whether you give them free reign or not, it's not, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with freedom of the press. That's not a radio station. It's a government mouthpiece. I couldn't agree with you more about Qatar. I, I guess in defense of Mark's theory of the case, I think the problem for us is that unlike any other scenario in which we find ourselves, Afghanistan, Iraq, fighting ISIS, there's no, there were no countervailing arguments there. You know, there's no one who was saying, oh, and now, you know, let Afghanistan into the European Union. Oh, you know, uh, well, I mean, you know, could happen. But the problem is that the reflexive diplomatic response of the entire international community, and I recognize what a bankrupt expression that is for a bankrupt group, but all the peace processors that you and I know so well, all of the uh, United Nations apparatchiks, all of the European Union officials, all of the um, what Donald Trump in one of his few extremely apt expressions called the deep state. Right? All of those people believe that the correct response to October 7th is the creation of a Palestinian state. And I can see absolutely every single instinct of this administration pushing towards a another fruitless, stupid, empty peace process. And in that sense, Mark is completely right that it, it will be a peace process with people who celebrated October 7th, which is unconscionable. So there does need to be, you know, our, our, one of our former bosses used to always like to say to me, you can't beat something with nothing. What is that? So, Ellie, you agree, you agree when it's Danny saying it, but not me. <laughs> I just Danny, have a charming what accent. Danny is saying, just, just charming what accent Danny for is saying, <laughs> What Danny is saying, and with which I agree, is you need a de-radicalization process in the State Department. Now, that, that <laughs> very different. Um, I, I do expect the administration to keep talking about the two-state solution. When I talk to them, they understand that, uh, you know, it's sort of something on the horizon. And I think the Gulf Arabs, I, I always put the Qataris on the side, but let's say the Saudis, Emiratis, Egyptians, Jordanians, recognize that there's a difference between something that's on the horizon and something that's actually uh, going, to, going to happen. What I can't figure out yet is whether the administration is smart enough to know this has to be a kind of mirage, dream, hologram, or whether they want to start again with negotiations. That will fail. Uh, it's interesting that not Netanyahu, but President Herzog of Israel has said, um, we, we're not ready for that. We're not going to do it. So, Elliot, I hope you're right. I really do. I worry a lot about the people who are thinking beyond a Biden first term to a Biden second term and their own prospects and their own future. But let's say that they all recognize that this is a well that has been drilled way too many times and it's probably dry. Here's the part of the scenario you didn't play out for us. And that is, yeah, okay, the Israelis are going to be trapped in Gaza for a while. You know, this is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning, to coin a phrase. But the Israelis are talking very seriously, and I think correctly seriously, about their own phase two having to be dealing with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Otherwise, they just leave themselves open to, you know, October 7th, 2024. 
So how does that part play out? Because by the way, they need the reserves for that too. Yeah. Well, first, um, I thought from the beginning that Hezbollah would not cause a war. And I'm happy, of course, that I was right about that. Uh, I still believe that. That is, some people have said, well, they're going to wait until the Israelis are tired in, you know, April. Uh, and then they're going to do it. I don't, I don't think that's right. But I think that war is coming. I think it is not coming next year. I think the Israelis need um, time, uh, partly for their economy to recover and partly for their army to recover. That is, this will be months of combat. Uh, reservists need to go home for a good while. There needs to be a full replenishment of the armories. Um, there need to be new plans, taking into account whatever they found out in Gaza. But um, the logic of it, I think, is too clear. That is, what they learned in Gaza was, don't believe you can psych out the enemy and know exactly what the enemy is thinking and when the enemy is going to do X or Y. Look at capabilities. And the Hezbollah capabilities are clear, and their ability to, to keep northern Israel near the border empty because people don't want to live there is clear. So uh, I... In my own visit to Israel in December, I, uh, early December, the sense I got from all the Israelis I spoke to was, this is pretty much inevitable unless Iran and Hezbollah change their conduct. There's no sign that that's going to happen. When you look at what the Houthis are doing, the suggestion is that the Iranians are doubling down. So I think that's going to happen, and it's going to be a pretty terrible war, but uh, it seems to me almost inevitable, uh, given Iran's conduct in the region. Let's talk about that, because, you know, this is described as an Israel-Hamas war. It's not really. It's an Israel-Iran war with an Iranian proxy. Um, and Iran is carrying out, through its proxies, military yes. operations, not just against Israel, but against the United States across the region. There's been over 100 attacks on U.S. forces in Syria, U.S. forces in Iraq, ships going through the Red Sea, and we're doing nothing. <laughs> you know, we're in a defensive posture because the Biden administration is terrified of escalation. You know, since Danny praised Donald Trump, like I'll do it too, and you served in the Trump administration. You know, Trump drew a red line, said, you kill a single American, and we're going to strike militarily against Iran. Um, and he took out Soleimani when they crossed the red line. They've killed over 30 Americans in, in the October 7th attack. They've held Americans hostage. They've given, you know, possibly hundreds of Americans traumatic brain injuries in some of these attacks. And we're just turtling. What the hell? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, look, unfortunately, this has been going on for decades and it's been bipartisan. I mean, they've been killing Americans basically since 1979. But I mean, think of Cobar Towers in Saudi Arabia and the Marine Barracks in Beirut. Hundreds of Americans killed in Iraq during the Iraq War uh, by Iran, not just by Iranian proxies. And we don't do anything about it, so they keep doing it, of course. They're not deterred. I have a little bit of hope that uh, the administration will recognize that it's got to hit the Houthis. But doing that, even if you do it, again, is hitting a proxy about whom the Iranians don't care. So kill some Houthis. They don't care. Ultimately, you're right. This is a war between Israel and Iran. And it is Iran's effort, first of all, to eliminate the state of Israel by surrounding it, um, but also to become the, the power, the dominant power in the Persian Gulf region. Question is whether we're going to do anything about it. And uh, we do not have any kind of reasonable anti-Iran policy. What we have today is Obama's Iran policy. It's the same people bringing back the same policy. At the end of the Trump administration, the usable foreign currency reserves available to Iran were $4 billion, which for a country of 70 million people is nothing. They were down to next to nothing. Now it's something like 50 billion dollars. Um, why? Because 
they are able to sell all the oil they can produce to China and others. We are not really enforcing the sanctions. The discounts they used to have to give are diminishing in size if they still exist at all. Um, so it, Iran is getting more and more money. It is getting richer and richer because of Biden administration policy. And again, it is the old Obama policy. It didn't work for Obama and it isn't working now. And the price that Iran is paying for all of its aggressions in the region is nothing. Okay. So I wrote a piece in National Review saying it's time we talk seriously about getting rid of the regime in Iran. The reality is, of course, that we're not going to talk seriously about getting rid of the regime in Iran, despite the fact that Danny Platka said so. Why don't they listen to me? But reality, what do we do? Well, first, uh, I think you go back to uh, what Trump was doing in the last half of his administration, which is a real effort to hurt their economy, to deprive them of the money that they use to support all these proxies and to try to keep the level of internal dissension down. That's first, economic warfare. Secondly, when they hit us through a proxy, we hit back. At the very end of the Trump administration, um, we did, as Mark said, we, the United States, did say to them, um, if you hit us, whether through a proxy or not, we'll hit you. And it uh, sobered them up. And that is the position I think we should take, start taking. And that doesn't mean, you know, bombing Tehran tomorrow morning, and it doesn't mean World War III, <clears throat> and it doesn't mean a, you know, a replay of the Iraq War. It means making them pay a direct price. And there are plenty of targets that could start you uh, low on the ladder of escalation and deliver a very clear message to Iran that the old game is over. The other part of it is uh, we should be doing a lot more to support the people of Iran in their struggle against the regime that they hate. We don't do zero, but uh, we don't really have a big human rights campaign against Iran, and we should. I remember during the Bush administration, the most dangerous job in the world was number three commander of Al-Qaeda because they stuck their head out of the cave and we whacked them. Maybe the most dangerous job in the world should be Quds Force commander. You know, the message should be, we killed Soleimani when you killed an American. If you kill another American, then every time you kill an American, the Quds Force commander dies. <laughs> that, I, you know, I would obviously go for that, but, but it's in a way the wrong target because when you say that, and Trump did, what you're saying is you can keep on trying and if all you do is injure Americans, that's okay. And that shouldn't be okay. The message to them has got to be um, stop targeting Americans or we will target you. Elliot, can we go back to the Palestinians for a second? I mean, you know, in all of the politicization that we've seen over the last two and a half months, what we've ended up with is, you know, a lot of moral relativism. You know, what did I see some cretin on msnbc say today oh yes well there is just no terrorist attack that excuses the assault on gaza okay well you know my feeling is that's not right but further than that it is i think important at a certain moment to recognize that um a lot of people who are in this business do care about Palestinian lives and do care about Palestinians and do care about the future of the people of the West Bank and Gaza and recognize that they have been short-sold by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and the U.S. government and the Europeans and the United Nations that really didn't care about their well-being. They just wanted to be able to check the box. Well, I stood for Palestine. I stood for a two-state solution. What what do we do? I mean, again, I've written about this. I have my own great neocon ideas. Um, they're probably not too different from yours, I, I hope. But they're, they're, we can't just say for the long term there's really no answer. We just have to wait till everybody awful dies. What's the answer for these guys? 
first, uh, I would say that Palestinians have be, been cursed by two things. They've been cursed by terrible, terrible leadership. From Hadramin al-Husseini, appointed by the British, to Yasser Arafat, whom you could almost say was appointed by the Israelis, that is, in the Oslo process. He was brought back from weakness and exile and put back uh, first in Gaza, then in the West Bank. Now you've got Mahmoud Abbas, but it's, it's a tragedy for Palestinians. The second thing they've been cursed by is their negative nationalism. That is, the key goal of Palestinian politics has not been to build a Palestinian state. It's been to destroy the Jewish state. And that is what I think has largely been responsible for the problems they've, they've created for themselves. What do you do now? First, you push for better leadership in, in the way that the United States really hasn't done except for George W. Bush uh, for several years. The second thing I'd say is that you, uh, you try to crush radicalism and radicalization to the extent you can. So that, for example, you demand, you the funders demand changes in what's being taught in PA schools and in UNRWA schools. Um, the, the third thing you do, and this is of course not being done at all, you begin to talk seriously about Palestinian autonomy um, rather than, I would argue, rather than a sovereign state. Um, the, the way I do it, I think, is to say, look, um, for the moment, that looks completely unrealistic, despite all the speeches people give. What is the way to maximize a decent, happy life for Palestinians, a prosperous life for Palestinians, rather than constantly negotiating things that are not happening and are not going to happen. What can you do to raise the per capita income? What can you do to help produce good government, at least, let's say, at the local level? What can you do to make Palestinian lives better? Uh, and people, as you were saying, Dan, I mean, people are concentrated in these negotiations on uh, pie in the sky rather than actually helping Palestinians in their lives today. And that's been true of, of um, Arab governments, obviously, that have just been posturing, and many of whom have worked out of what I'd call a complete contempt for Palestinians. They, you know, it's just politics to them. The United States has cared a lot more about the, the lives of Palestinians than most Arab governments have. But I think that spending your time on the the mirage of a sovereign and independent Palestinian state rather than on trying to help, you know, real life Palestinians um, is, is not the path we should be taking. I'll push back on you slightly, Elliot, because I think that the mirage is that the Palestinians want a better life. One of the flaws in our administration, I think, was we both served, is that we, you know, we had this idea that people everywhere around the world want the same things. They want a better life for their children. They want, uh, you know, peace. And we just got to give them better governments mm -hmm. that can deliver that. And you just look at the polls in, in uh, the Palestinians and no, they want to destroy Israel. <laughs> They've been radicalized. You know, there was that, I've, I've talked about this in the pod before, but there's that famous liberal filmmaker uh, who followed, he, he, there was a Palestinian kid who was brought out of Gaza to, uh, he had some genetic disease, was brought to Israeli hospitals, treated by Israeli doctors, his life was saved, and the filmmaker is driving back to Gaza with the mother and the kid who's just gotten a new lease on life, and he says, well, what do you want to do, what do you want for your son now that he's he's got his life back? And she said, I want him to be a suicide bomber, to kill Jews. I mean, the, we, we, you can't have the things that you, that we're talking about here before you have de-radicalization, because there's an entire segment, I'm not saying it's everybody in the Palestinian Arab territories, but there's a large number of people who care more about destroying Israel and killing Jews than they care about improving their conditions. And I, I, I think we've sort of been following a, a mirage that if we just give them aid and help them to build a better life and more responsible leaders, that somehow they'll, you know, they'll embrace, you know, the universal values of freedom that we all love here. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, obviously, uh, at least I think there is. I think first, you'd need to know some sense of the numbers. That is, we're talking about 90%, 50%, 20%. Secondly, there's the issue of 
salience. That is, okay, you hate the Israelis, uh, you wish they'd go away, uh, you kind of think uh, Hamas and other groups are fine, but how do you want to live your life? Do you want to do that? Or uh, do you acknowledge now that, that that's not doable? When the Israelis say we need to distort, restore deterrence, that's what they mean. They mean that they need to get back to the point where Arabs recognize that if you hit the Israelis, they'll kill you. So don't do it. But I, you know, look, one of the reasons that I think there shouldn't be, cannot be, won't be a Palestinian state, as I said, is it's just too great a security threat to Israel and Jordan for some of the reasons that you state. I think Iran is also critical here. But look, what are we learning in, in the aftermath of October 7th about Europe and about the United States? There are a lot of people who hate Jews. Um, I don't think, personally, and I think there's poll data that would support this, that there is a lot more anti-Semitism in Europe or the United States today than there was in September. I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing people come out of, you know, the, the caves or out from under the rocks under which they were hiding their hatred of Jews. I, I don't think we're going to be able to eliminate Arab anti-Semitism. We can't eliminate anti-Semitism in Europe and the United States. What we can do is uh, punish it. What we can do is make it illegal. And what we can do, of course, is strengthen the Jewish communities. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, de-radicalization, yes, I, I understand that and I agree, for example, in what is taught in schools. But if the goal is to eliminate the hatred of Jews, well, that goal goes back a couple of thousand years and has never been successfully achieved. Elliot, can I just, just to hearken your point about how we need de-radicalization here at home? <laughs> a Harvard-Harris poll. Do you think the long-term answer to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute is for Arab states to absorb the Palestinians, for there to be two states, Israel and Palestine, or for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians? 51% of Americans aged 18 to 24 think Israel should be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians, and I'm reading the question because it's, I want people to understand this is not like, we're not editing the question. Do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians and the kidnapping of another 250 civilians can be justified by grievances of the Palestinians, or is it not justified? 60% of Americans age 18 to 24 think it can be justified. Do you think that Jews as a class are oppressors and should be treated as oppressors, or is that a false ideology? 67% of Americans 18 to 24 think Jews are oppressors. What the fuck? I, I mean... What, you know, screw the, screw the de-radicalization of the Palestinian people. We need to de-radicalize the American people. And especially with this young generation, it, it, by the way, it flips as you get older, it flips. Um, but, but this young generation, the, what is wrong with our education system? What is wrong with our society that we've raised a generation of anti-Semites? couple of comments. First, um, this is an argument for raising the voting age to 40. Um, oh my God, that's so true. One of, the things about, <laughs> one of the things about those people, that young people, is how many of them don't know anything. You may have seen the, the poll that asked people who favored, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What river and what sea? And people didn't know. A lot of them said, uh, gee, the Nile River. So the ignorance is extraordinary. I would be very interested in knowing in that poll data of people 18 to 24, if there's any distinction between those who are in college or just out of it and those who didn't go to college. I suspect not, which as you're saying is a real indictment of what they're not learning um, in American college. Oh, I suspect the latter. I suspect that the ones who didn't go to college are less likely to hold those views than the right. ones who and, did. And it does raise the question, as all these demonstrations on college campuses do, what's being taught in those classes and what's being learned 
in those classes. One of the things that's being learned is that uh, rules don't apply. It's very striking uh, in on the most of these demonstrations violate the rules on the campuses in which they take place. Who's punished? Nobody. I mean, one of the ways to deal with this is to say, we have a rule here that says you can't invade the library and have a demonstration while people are studying, for example. So when you do that, you're suspended or you're expelled. That would be the last such demonstration in that library on that campus. If campuses did that, uh, you, you'd at least uh, be telling people again, whatever sickness is in your head, keep it in your head, because if you express it in this society, uh, you will be punished. This is what we did to try to help deal with racism in the United States. Um, but I, I agree with you, Mark. Uh, it's just horrifying to think of what these young people have been and are being taught at great price in what are supposedly, you know, the best hundred colleges and universities in America. It's, it's uh, horrifying. And again, I, I think there's a lot of soul searching in the American Jewish community about what to do about this. And my answer to it is um, Jews should worry about themselves more than about anti-Semites. They should worry about strengthening their families and their own communities. Much of the anti-Semitism that's being expressed on campuses and off is already illegal. Um, so that's, a, that's an issue that law enforcement should deal with and that the college authorities should finally get up the courage to deal with themselves. So the why it takes courage is really beyond me. No, we saw that in Congress, didn't we? Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And we've got a big project about this at AEI that I, I hope will I hope it'll be uh, helpful and effective. Um, exit question for me, and it is related to all of this. So, you know, we've talked about the issues that a lot of us think about all the time. What should the Israelis do? How should they fight? How can they win? What happens when they win? What happens to the Palestinians? What are the next steps? Lebanon, Iran, Qatar, Qatar, Qatar. Oh, my God. I could say so much more. But really... I want to come back to home because I think one of the most poignant things that's come out of this podcast conversation with you is the fact that Mark asked a question, which is what can we do to de-radicalize the Palestinians? And the much harder question is what can we do to de-radicalize Americans? What the hell has happened to the Democratic Party? I've given Joe Biden a lot of praise and I'm Deservedly. And John Kirby is, is to me, the NSC spokesman, a hero. Uh, I love to yeah. listen to him. I can't believe how great he's been. Um, you know, <laughs> I could go on and on about this. When not talking about Afghanistan. Not everybody is as perfect as we'd like them to be, but at least some of them are a, a little bit good. What has happened to the Democratic Party of the United States? It has become a bastion of Israel hatred. We haven't talked about the vote on Capitol Hill, the pro-Israel uh, bill in the House, in which every Republican voted for it except for that cretin Thomas Massey, and 92 Democrats voted president. I'm sorry. What's happened to the Democratic Party? That, along with the de-radicalization of Americans, is a true long-term crisis for our country. And that's my last one. You know, I started out as a Democrat um, and worked for Scoop Jackson. And, All too well with the great Daniel Scoop Jackson. Moynihan, Pat Moynihan. Um, and that was, of course, a very different Democratic Party. Part of the problem is age. That is, you don't see this, you know, among Democrats who are 65 or 55 or 45. You see it as we were saying, among the younger ones. So that's partly a crisis of American education. And it is partly the, the changing, uh, if you will, membership of the Democratic Party. That is, in until a few decades ago, it was a working person's party, a working man's party, a, a party of uh, the AFL-CIO. Now it's uh, the party of what used to be called the new class. 
that is people who work with pens rather than with their hands. And the Republican Claudine Gay. Yes, and the Republican Party has become the party of um, you might say working Americans, the kind of people who uh, Hillary Clinton thought should vote for her and wouldn't vote for her, and that made her very angry. But the Democratic Party, you know, it's kind of it's Obama's party now. It really is Obama's party, and it shares his, oh, what shall we say, nuanced view of the sins of the United States. Um, that, I think, is not going to change except through electoral defeat. And uh, they may get an electoral defeat, and they should be asking themselves, geez, if we can't beat Donald Trump with all of his troubles, um, what's wrong with us? My exit question, we've talked about the de-radicalization of the Palestinians. We've talked about de-radicalization of American youth. We've talked about de-radicalization of the Democratic Party. How about de-radicalization of the State Department? I mean, what is it, 500 people signed a letter protesting the president's policy in Israel? The White House has been facing, uh, you know, people with tumult inside. 50 interns signed a letter protesting the president's policy. Interns signed a letter. I mean, seriously, they should, they should, these they people should, should all, all be, be fired. I'm what sorry. The, I mean, slapped. put aside Israel, put aside any, uh, the, the issues at hand, who do these people think they are? I mean, they've served at the pleasure of the president. If I, can you imagine that happening in our administrations? I mean, the intern thing really is nuts. I mean, these people are what, 22 years old or something. Every single one who did that should have been fired and told you're an intern. I'll tell you about one conversation in the Reagan administration. I think it was about Poland with Secretary of State George Shultz. And it was a State Department uh, official who didn't support the policy. And at a meeting, he said, I, I object to this and here's why. Um, and Shultz let him speak for, I don't know, say two minutes, three minutes, and he expressed his views. And when he finished, Shultz said to him, well, you may be right. Here's what you need to do. You need to get yourself elected president. But Ronald Reagan got himself elected president. So we're going to do it his way. That's really what people need to be told. You're maybe less politely. Shut up. You are not president of the United States. If you can't stand it, leave. That's all. But the notion of these... Uh, Career government employees, you know, protesting publicly this way, uh, <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me. And as you said, it wouldn't have been uh, tolerated in our administration. But frankly, do you think Lyndon Johnson would have tolerated it? Do you think Harry Truman would have tolerated it? No. I think Barack Obama would have tolerated it. <laughs> That's right. Although Barack Obama, of course, would never, no one would have in the State Department would have protested uh, in that way against Barack Obama went back to the State Department in the Trump administration after 30 years away from it. And I must say, I found the culture uh, completely unchanged. Uh, it, it's, a very, um, it's a very strong culture. I also found that you can deal with it as a Republican political appointee, um, but you don't deal with it, frankly, um, by pampering people and coddling them. You deal with it by saying, here's the policy. Now I want to do, I want to implement the policy in an intelligent way. So if you can help me and give me advice about how to do that, that would be great. Um, but this is the policy. And I think it's what Blinken did is exactly wrong. As I understand it, after all these protests, you know, they've organized listening sessions and therapy sessions. And next thing you know, they'll be bringing in therapy dogs. I mean, it, this is not the way to handle these protests. Um, the way to handle it is to say to people, nobody elected you and you don't make policy. The president made this policy. Now help him implement it or leave. Right. Leave. Or better still, just leave. Elliot, per usual, we've abused your time, enjoyed ourselves immensely, learned a ton. Thank you, really. Thank you for being on again with us. Our listeners love you. We love you. 
and happy holidays. Always a pleasure. Happy holidays to you guys. And hopefully in uh, in a little over a year, you'll inherit these problems. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't even want to get started there. Gee, and I thought Thank we were you, Take care. <laughs> Bye. 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 All right, Danny, what do you think? So I want to talk about something that got mentioned only in passing. I think that there is a low roar coming, but I think that it's going to be hard for them to push back. Look, we need to talk about the Qatari government. It's not just what Elliot said. It's not just Al Jazeera. It's not just the fact that Al Jazeera cooperated with Al Qaeda. It's not just the fact that Al Jazeera cooperates with Hamas. It's not just that the Hamas leadership lives in Qatar. It's not just that the Taliban leadership lived in Qatar. It's not just Al Qaeda and ISIS that is supported by and has worked with Qatar. It is that despite the fact that we have one of our most important air bases there, this is an enemy of the United States. And we need to give them a choice in the coming months. You can either be with those guys, Iran, Hamas, Al-Qaeda. They're not picky on the sectarian side. Or you can be with us. It's now or never. I agree with you. What do you make of the argument that it's useful for the United States to have some sort of a channel uh, for back-channel communications? To the, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that, that would be the argument, is that Qatar is the way the, the way you can talk to Hamas and get messages to them, the way you can talk to uh, these people and get messages to them is through the Qataris. What do you say to that? I say that whores are a dime a dozen. What was that old line? <laughs> what was that old line, right, that the Admiral said? I still remember this because it had so much relevance for foreign policy. Admiral Nance, our, our late former boss, he said to me, Danny, you know that story about the, the guy who walks up to a woman at a bar and he says, hey, would you have sex with me for a million dollars? And she goes, oh, okay. And he goes, okay, so here's five bucks. Come up to my room. And she looks at him and says, sir, do you think I'm a prostitute? And he just looks at her and says, madam. That has already been established. Now we're just haggling about the price. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the gutteries. And, you know, I agree. Here's something we didn't get into with Elliot, which is, you know, he he taught, he made a valid point, which is, you know, we can't, Jews can't de-radicalize the Palestinian population, right? But right. what, the Saudis could. Maybe it should be part of the responsibility of these countries with whom we have signed Abraham Accords or want to sign Abraham Accords is that you you got to take on the problem of, of de-radicalizing these people. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. Or is there, or is there no hope? I mean, is this just going to be is this just going to be the way it is for the next generation, and the generations after that, and that there's there's never going to be. A, a chance at any kind of normalcy because if you if you can't de-radicalize the Palestinians then Israel will never have peace. I mean yes you could it's like your point about the about Iran, right? You know, ultimately this is going to keep going on as long as Iran exists, right? Well, this is going to keep going on as long as Hamas exists and and the radicalization of the of the Palestinians exists. If you can't de-radicalize the Palestinian population and get them to care more about their own lives than killing Jews, then this problem is just October. They're right. October 7th is just the first one. It's going to be October 7th over and over and over again. Look, Mark, I've always believed my entire career, and I want to believe that um, failure is a great cleanser. Um, the Germans were willing participants in the Holocaust, and no. now they are among the most stalwart supporters of Israel. It took a long time, but... I think that at a certain point, every one of these groups, the Irish Republican Army, all of them, they give up, right? They fail. And the only job for us is to is to get rid of the people who want them to keep on killing. You know, that's why I said it was ultimately about Iran. But I think Qatar's part of the game, too. I think that, the, you know... In so many ways, this isn't really about the Palestinians. No one cares about the Palestinians. That's their tragedy, you know. No one really cares about them. The Americans don't. They just want a token, you know. It's like apartheid in South Africa. Do people really care about the people of South Africa? Do they look at the, the, the squalor, the crime, the economic decline in South Africa since the end of apartheid and say to themselves, what happened? Not that apartheid was better. 
But what happened, we care about those people. No, they don't care about them. They don't care about the Palestinians. The Palestinians need people who care about them. And it's partly our failure and their own failure to find people who do. They need to lose. They need to lose big. And the radicals need to lose their sponsors. When that happens, things will change. The only way Germany and Japan changed is they won. They were defeated decisively. You know, that's the first step. That's why I'm I'm not upset about Gaza being crushed. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, no, no one, no one was having humanitarian pauses in Dresden. No one was sending uh, humanitarian aid corridors to Berlin. The model for success is decisive defeat followed by de-radicalization. And you can't have the latter until you have the former. And on that bloodthirsty note, an appropriate <laughs> Merry Christmas, our, peace on earth. <laughs> to, our, to our podcast, guys, we've had a million, million listeners this year. We've had some horrible tragedies. We've had some real high points. But among our greatest joys and is being able to talk to you every week and hearing back from you. And uh, and spending quality time together wearing the same glasses, Mark Thiessen and I. Uh, thank you all for a great year. And we'll see you in, shockingly enough, 2024. Happy New Year and Merry Christmas. Take care. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 